Section 4 of The Black Cat, Volume 1, Number 12, September 1896. This is a LibreVox recording. All LibreVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibreVox.org. Recording by Julie Burks. The Black Cat, Volume 1, Number 12, September 1896. Section 4. A Mental Mischance by Thomas F. Anderson. Albert Reeves could never fix the exact date when he discovered that he was a mind-reader. Whether he had been born with the power or had been suddenly endowed with it by some unexplainable agency will probably always remain a mystery, but this much is certain. He was yet comparatively new to this world and its wicked ways when the fullness of the mysterious power was upon him, and was not yet twenty when he began to put it to a practical, money-making use. Young Reeves first utilized his unique gift in this manner as an amateur detective, with the same success as when, a few years earlier, he had been able to divine the intentions of his schoolteacher toward him in the matter of corporal punishment by getting that worthy's mind in oculation with his own. In the same manner, he had been able to quickly gauge the real depth of feeling entertained toward him by the various young ladies of his affection and he often remarked that if others were kindly favored by nature with the same power of mental analysis, the divorce courts would not have to hold so many extra sessions as they do nowadays. Naturally, his detective career was a wonderful success. Indeed, he might have achieved the fame of a Burns and Vidoc in one had he chosen to remain in that profession, for he had the advantage over all other detectives in that he was enabled not only to read the thoughts of a guilty man, but to diagnose the mind of a man who had not committed a crime, but was planning to. In this way he could not only detect crime, but could prevent it, which is really the first duty of a police force, according to the printed instructions that are posted up at the station-houses. Many a time, indeed, this remarkable man walked into a bank, ostensibly to have a note discounted or a check cashed, but in reality to see if the cashier or paying teller were contemplating a sudden raise of salary at the expense of the institution, and more than once his efforts were rewarded by discovering a trusted official hovering on the brink of a precipice, as it were, perhaps ready to fly with his ill-gotten gains that very night, had not Reeves been instrumental in saving both the official and the bank. But in spite of his phenomenal success, the detective business palled upon young Reeves before he had been in it two years. There was too much human misery connected with it, too many broken-hearted wives and children, too many ruined homes. The money earned from other people's wretchedness fairly burned in his pocket. Besides, his inclinations had always pointed to newspaper work, and while he lacked training as a writer, he knew that the reputation that he had already won in the police department was the best possible guarantee of success on that great detective agency, the Daily Press, and so it proved. Within three days after he made known his proposed change of calling, Reeves received five tempting offers from as many big dailies in New York, Boston, and Chicago, two of which had come by telegraph, while a third was tendered by a special messenger who had traveled hundreds of miles to make the proposition. 
Of course, the police departments of various cities and the leading detective agencies in the land made heavy counterbids to retain him, but to no purpose. After a week's deliberation, Reeves accepted a position as special writer on the city staff of a metropolitan daily, where he was welcomed as a unique and valuable addition to modern journalism. Of course, he didn't fill an editorial chair. A journalistic mind-reader would have had little chance to exercise his powers inside the four walls of an office. But in his position as star reporter, he rose almost at a bound to the position of the leading newspaper man of his time. In less than two months, he had gained such a reputation for phenomenal scoops that his photograph was displayed in the shop windows along with the Duke of Marlborough and the latest theatrical star, while his life was made the subject of half a dozen articles in the popular periodicals, and this reputation he won in the simplest possible way. He had only to go to any man, no matter how high in official station or how taciturn and reserved, and by simply getting his subject's thoughts fixed upon the desired topic, could drag from him without his knowledge the fullest details of the affair. Statesmen and cabinet officials with weighty secrets of the greatest public importance locked up, as they thought, in their own minds, were as easy prey for him as the bank cashiers used to be when he was a detective. Nothing that he got upon the trail of ever escaped him, and the country almost became involved in a war with another nation once, on account of the premature publication of some momentous diplomatic secret that he had brought forth from its hiding place in Washington. Naturally, this phenomenally endowed young man's paper became so famous for forecasting accurately great events, exposing big criminal conspiracies, and discounting gigantic railroad deals, that its circulation grew to enormous proportions, and before he had been on its staff six months, it was quoted as an infallible authority all over the land. Reeves had worked on like this for about a year, gaining new laurels day after day, and getting his salary doubled as regularly as the month went by, when he awoke one day from his absorption in his profession to the fact that he was accumulating gold as well as glory. To his savings in the detective agency, he had added during the past year everything except his very modest living expenses, and he now found himself the possessor of a nest egg for a fortune, with this discovery, a new idea flashed into his busy brain. Why not take advantage of his great mental power and make himself a second Vanderbilt or Rockefeller by watching the big deals in the stock market, if insiders, who were not mind-readers, could make princely fortunes out of their knowledge? Why couldn't he? The idea had no sooner suggested itself than he put it into practice. It worked like a charm. All he had to do was walk into the offices of George Gould or Russell Sage or Chauncey Depew or any of the other big men who changed the railroad map or the industrial situation to suit themselves and talk pleasantly about the weather or the crops or the prospects of this or that stock. Then, if on the occasion of such visits, any of these great manipulators had a big scheme on hand, Reeves quickly became an insider on his own invitation and bought or sold stocks as the case demanded. 
In less than six weeks, he was independently wealthy, forging ahead of all the younger financiers as easily as he had outrivaled his journalistic colleagues. One day, about two months after this, newest young Napoleon of finance entered upon his Wall Street career. He became convinced that a deal of more than ordinary proportions was on foot. He tested a dozen big men of his financial acquaintance, for he was now able to give even big men valuable tips occasionally, without getting any satisfactory clue, and finally decided that a certain well-known financier, who seemed to be on the minds of those whom Reeves had sounded, was the man he wanted to get at. As it happened, Reeves was on specially friendly terms with this financier, who was of a somewhat literary turn of mind and liked nothing better than to discuss the degeneracy of journalism and kindred topics with the brilliant young journalist. Accordingly, the young man received a pleasant greeting when he presented himself, although he soon discovered that the financier was very deeply engrossed in some important matter. It was an oppressively hot day, and the headache Reeves had acquired in his excited search for the all-important clue caused his brain to be less receptive than usual. He had no difficulty, however, in learning that the magnet was struggling with the details of some great deal. While they sat there and talked about a rather trivial matter that the younger man had made the excuse for his visit, the latter fixed his mind on the others as well as he could in his fatigued state, and what he learned almost sent him into a delirium of excitement. The thought transference took place rather slowly, but when it ended he was in possession of information concerning one of the most gigantic pieces of stock manipulation that the century had witnessed. Without going into details, it contemplated the consolidation of some twenty-five of the biggest railroad systems in the land, many of them heretofore at odds with one another, that could not fail to at once send up the value of all of them at least twenty-five per cent and in some cases fully fifty per cent. Millions of dollars were to be saved in expenses alone, and the aggregate capital represented was almost beyond ordinary comprehension. Just when the deal was to be consummated, Reeves could not determine, but as the mind of the financier seemed engrossed with its details to the exclusion of everything else, the young man felt assured that the date could not be far removed. In a week, a day, an hour even, he told himself, as he left this friend's office, the gigantic scheme might be sprung on the public. The stock markets, both here and in London, would be thrown into a frenzy of speculative madness, and railroad stocks would jump to fabulous figures. Now was the time to act. By investing his fortune immediately, Reeves could, as he found by swift calculation, literally own, if not the earth, at least a big share of it. Strangely enough, however, this knowledge, instead of exalting him, only steadied his nerves. During his walk from Wall Street to Broadway, Reeves evolved his whole plan of action. It was then within an hour and a half of the time when the banks would close, but in less than three-quarters of that time he had drawn out every cent of ready money that he had on deposit. Then hurrying back to Wall Street, he proceeded to unload every sort of negotiable security he possessed, and to place orders to buy on margin blocks of stocks, representing every one of the railroads that were in the deal. 
this accomplished he felt that in a few weeks time he would be able if he liked to pay off the national debt or restore the gold balance that night the young man's self-control gave way and he went to bed with a raging fever when he awoke again he painfully asked the white-robed nurse standing near his bed how long he had been there for it didn't take him long to realize what had happened she replied ten days next day they allowed him to have a newspaper and he nervously turned to the financial page almost the very first paragraph his eyes fell upon was one describing how burlington northwestern nickel plate and several other of the big railroads in the great deal had already dropped ten to twenty-five points since the big silver panic set in one week ago two or three months later while he was still convalescing young reeves received a nicely bound volume it bore the signature of his friend the literary financier and was proved on examination to be a fantastic novel of the twentieth century entitled the great railroad revolution for the first few pages the invalid gave only a languid interest to the tale which opened like half a dozen other stories he had read of the looking backward variety but when he came to a certain chapter wherein was described as one of the greatest achievements of the twentieth century the gigantic consolidation of the burlington the northwestern and a score of other big systems he let the book drop from his hand like an electric shock it came to him that what he had read in the literary financier's mind on that fateful day had been not a speculative scheme but part of the plot for a novel instead of being on the verge of consummating a railroad deal the man had been simply evolving from his imagination a chapter based upon the modern tendency toward combines it was upon the fantastic fancy of a novelist and not the schemes of a financier that reeves had staked and lost a fortune albert reeves is not reading other people's minds any more whether it was the fever or the fact that he had once read a mind falsely that destroyed the charm can never be determined but this is certain since the day when a cog slipped in the wheel of his fortune the mysterious power that so nearly made him one of the magnets of the world is his no longer if he had not lost his money also he would not have cared so much for he could then have bought out a paper or opened a real estate office as it is now he is working as a reporter at a salary of fifteen dollars a week. End of section four.